the victim's families are going through the worst thing they could ever imagine. They kiss their loved one on the cheek as they left that morning. And they have an officer coming and saying, you'll never see this person again. I can't even imagine. I think I just look at it and know that if I'm doing my job well, that I can bring some sense of peace to these families. Welcome to Crime News Insider. This is Jorge Del Portillo. And with me, as always, is Lori Hawk. How are you doing, Lori? Hi, I'm doing well. You know, it's been a, a while. We had a little hiatus there, and I don't think it was a, a planned one. I've been super busy. I don't know about you. Yeah, I was just I was just waiting for you to call and never <laughs> called. Story of my high school, my high school dating life. <laughs> you know, this time it's a legitimate excuse. Um, this I, I've just had so many cases. Now we're getting out to trial. We're we're dealing with this backlog uh, of the pandemic. So. Things are finally moving, which is good. Exactly. And, you know, I have a couple of trials next month. And so I don't know how many podcasts we're going to do, but the audience demands that they hear from us. You know, we just picked a jury today, actually. And they asked the question, do you know the prosecutors here? And I was just waiting for someone to say, oh, I listened. I listened to the podcast. Not one person said it. So, you know what? I give it time. Give it give time. It time. It's going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, because you have a voice for radio. It's just it was just a matter of time before <laughs> these people found you on a podcast. Exactly. So, well, hopefully, maybe hopefully the jury's not listening. I won't talk about the case, but um, if they are listening, never don't mind. Listen I won't say anymore. Anything. <laughs> don't, don't, don't listen, listen. anymore. No, your trial will be done by now. All right. Well, let's let's talk about today's episode. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about DUI homicides. And it's really relevant now because DUI fatalities in San Diego County has spiked in 2021 and marked the, the most fatal DUI crashes in two decades. Our county, which typically sees on average around 15 to 20 DUI fatalities annually, saw last year more uh, 37 DUI fatalities. I mean, this is just everywhere. And one article I saw said the average blood alcohol content for someone arrested for DUI in San Diego County was 0.18%. That is just over double the legal limit for those that double, want yes, to do math. Exactly. And that is just that is just way, way above. And we're going to talk to our guests here in a, in a moment. But 0.08 is the legal limit and it, here in California. And at that level, you are you are driving under the influence for alcohol. And I've seen people. I don't know if you've you've done this, Lori, I'm sure gone on a ride along. I remember going with a cop and he was handing out a pass, people coming out of the bar. And this one guy was just really drunk. You could see it. He was slurring his words, everything. He blew into the breathalyzer and it was a 0.13. I thought he was going to be over 2.0, but just to go to show you, a 1.8 is just huge. Definitely shouldn't be on the road. And it just, it does seem to me as, as somebody who, you know, likes reading local news and Jorge, we just got literally in the middle of our podcast, a, um, somebody that wanted to pass along a compliment that we received from a UT reporter, David Hernandez, that enjoys the podcast. So somebody who, yeah, somebody who, um, who reads the UT and reads local news, I feel like we hear it. it. It's constant. It's constantly coming up you know, a DUI, DUI fatality or a crash involving alcohol. We're just, it, it just seems like it is on the news constantly. And I feel like, you know, we as prosecutors, but even as people, you know, in the community kind of get desensitized that that is something that's normal when it should never be normal. 
Exactly. Especially in today's day, day and age with Uber and Lyft, it, it is just totally inexcusable. Well, with that, we have a very special guest. Today, we have Kelly Bright with the San Diego District Attorney's Office. Kelly Bright has been a Deputy District Attorney at the San Diego DA's Office for over 20 years. Seven years ago, she started up our DUI homicide unit. And as the head of the unit, she's responsible for prosecuting DUI homicides and vehicular manslaughter cases. She's taught for numerous organizations and institutions, including California Western School of Law and the National Advocacy Center in South Carolina. Callie has received numerous awards, including the Mothers Against Drunk Driving, or MAD, Prosecutor of the Year for San Diego County in 2010, the MAD Prosecutor of the Year for the State of California in 2014, and the MAD Pursuit of Justice Award in 2018. Callie Bright, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, you know, here, uh, we hear in San Diego that DUI fatalities are up, and that seems to be the trend in the United States. And it seems counterintuitive because, like we were saying with, with Lori, that drivers on the road during the pandemic, we would think there was going to be less people on the road. What is causing this surge, and how is law enforcement responding? Well, I'd love to be able to tell you what's causing it with some def- definition, but uh, it's a trend that's going across the entire U.S. They saw an increase in DUI-related fatalities up 20%. In the last year, which is shocking. You know, we'd been in this, you know, slowly going down, you know, the year I actually, the first year I wrote the grant application for this unit was in 2009. And that year we had nine fatalities. So since the unit has started, we pretty much averaged like 15 to 18 or so, 15 to 20, but then 2020. So for three months out of that year here in San Diego, there was practically nobody on the roadways. The amount of misdemeanor. So, you know, the low level DUI cases was almost non-existent. And yet in 2020, we had 30 fatalities. That was a shocking number. It was 30 fatalities in nine months. And then 2021, things are starting to get back going. Things are starting to open up. We saw the worst year that we've ever seen that, you know, in well over two decades of 37. And I think there's a couple of reasons. I think people got really used to the roadways being a lot less congested during the pandemic. So people were driving faster. I think in the last two years, the attitude towards law enforcement has been so dramatically changed that law enforcement are not being as proactive as they would be going out and looking for the the 08, 09 DUI. And I back this up by looking at the statistics that I've kept for years over the amount of misdemeanor cases. So normally we're somewhere around 10,000 or so, and the number has been slowly creeping down every year. But the DUI injury cases is where I look at the number. And surprisingly, we're generally around 440, 450 DUI injury cases. And that number has not changed. You would think that... You know, if the, if the DUI, misdemeanor DUI numbers have, I mean, they've honestly come down from 15,000 eight years ago down to 10,000, then you'd expect to see the same decrease in injury cases, but we're not. And so like last year, I think there was 6,000 misdemeanor DUI cases, and that's because people were not driving nearly as much. 
and yet we still had 440 injury cases. So that tells me that we have less law enforcement doing the proactive, going out there looking for them, and yet they are still responding to the cases where they have to, the reactive, where someone's hurt. Gotcha. Wow, that's that's pretty uh, shocking to to hear that. That despite the the decrease in overall numbers, but the injuries are still there. Jeez. Well, yeah, well, and, and deaths have gone up. Which you know, oh. if if injuries have stayed the same, but deaths have gone up, that is sort of a perplexing equation as well. And you know, I was I was going to suggest. Well, you know, we've talked about mental health and COVID and people being you know sh- shut up for a period of time in their houses. But then you look at the numbers and there's there's definitely more to it than just just that, which is kind of what we've been excusing lots of behavior for for a number of years. And, you know, we have general homicides up. We have general gang cases. up. You know, why is that? And I think there's no simple answer. And you've just added another wrinkle to it for sure. As a DUI homicide prosecutor, what are some of the challenges that that you see just in general and then maybe defenses that you see in particular? A lot of my cases where I'm charging them as a what we call a Watson murder. So this is a second degree murder because the person either has a prior DUI or they have such specific knowledge of the dangers of drinking and driving. We see that in several of our military cases where they've had to do like safety stand downs or liberty briefings or, you know, certain, you know, professions that might deal with, you know, substance abuse, et cetera, or you know, we've also had cases where people you know, failed out of drug court and yet they didn't have a prior DUI, but they failed out of drug court. So obviously in their background, we have information that we can prove not only the broad picture that everyone knows it's dangerous to drink and drive, but that this individual person knew it. So the implied malice cases, um, a lot of times they either attack the fact that they didn't at the time of driving have the intent to commit harm, because then I've heard them say, well, that would mean my client was suicidal, which is is not the case. Um, But they don't look at it far enough back like the intent isn't to kill someone because that would be first degree murder. The Mm -hmm. intent is to do something that is so dangerous that you know is dangerous and you do it anyway. These cases, they're all really sad. And I know for the longest time in the office when I'm coming up, a Watson murder was kind of considered like less than. It wasn't as significant as like a stabbing or shooting. And I really had to kind of put my head around that when I was first kind of getting into doing DUI fatalities. And I kind of thought about it. I'm like, no, I'm not the, I have never done a, a stint in gangs and the, their cases are very complex and things like that. I said, but the stigma that, you know, a Watson murder had was that it was somehow less than, and it finally took one of my chiefs saying to me, which is harder getting a second degree murder conviction on the gangster that has FU tattooed on his forehead <laughs> or the soccer mom with the drinking problem. Yeah. So it's terrible. And, you know, I think I think they're hard in their own respects. But one of the hardest things that you mentioned that that I've experienced is it's a tragedy all around. Oftentimes it's a tragedy for the victim and the victim's family and the loss of life there. It's a tragedy oftentimes for the person that has committed the DUI, DUI fatality because they didn't intend that harm because now they're actions have impacted their family and potentially for generations now. And you see that ripple effect of harm that that permeates entire communities because 
of one person's decision, right? And those choices that they made that night. And that's where the tragedy is, right? That's where the tragedy is for me in these types of cases. Um, how do you, how do you handle the emotional side of it, Callie? Um, I do get asked that a lot um, from reporters who know that, that when they see me come into a courtroom, they you know, know it's a DUI fatality. And I feel very blessed because in my life, I don't know anyone who's been taken from a DUI driver. Uh, but I just look at it and think these people are going through the victims. Families are going through the worst thing they could ever imagine. They kissed their loved one on the cheek as they left that morning. And they have an officer coming and saying, you'll never see this person again. I can't even imagine how sad they are. And I get involved in the every 15 minutes program. So I deal with this a lot. Um, I think I just look at it and know that if I'm doing my job well, that I can bring some sense of peace to these families. And I know that nothing that I can do in my job is going to bring back their loved one. No amount of time is going to offset their loss, but just knowing that the victim's wishes are part of why we do this, but it's also holding people accountable because people have very polarizing opinion about DUIs. And you, you probably deal with, with all sides of that as you confront the issue. And all sorts of uh, defendants. I, you know, I saw one quote that you said in 2016, and it really struck me so true from the type of defendants that sometimes we see for these DUI cases. You said, you're not dealing with monsters most of the time. I don't ever forget that. What do you mean by that? Well, I did think, I mean, in all the cases that I've handled, and I've probably at this point in time handled somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 50, uh, which is a lot of fatality cases, we very seldom get a case where the defendant is what I would call a bad guy, someone who's already been to prison, somebody who has who has strikes, um, somebody who's been in and out of custody, you know, for the last decade. We seldom get those cases. And most often we're getting the person who uh, like one of the cases that just got affirmed on appeal, the um, the Bain case. And this is a woman who had three children who had a DUI very young in life at like 1920. And then she was good. And then she picked up another one about 26, 27, went to all the classes. And then she obviously was, like I said, a soccer mom with a drinking problem. And then she was a 0.32 driving home one night from a friend's house. And she crashes into a car with a nurse that just got off duty. Mm. And the nurse leaves behind a two-year-old and a husband who were expecting her home any moment. And you know, and like you said, Lori, it's it's really a tragedy because it ruined her family and it ruined the family of the victim. And the defendant was so impaired that I don't even think she had any recollection of what happened that night anyways. And she was hurt in the crash and the financial impact. I mean, these are really these are the type of crimes that can hit anyone like it doesn't like, you know, a, a lot of the gang cases, you know, if you're a gangster, then you're going to expect that you're going to be around crime. Whereas these ones, you know, walking home from work at two in the morning. And, and when you're presenting this case to the jury, that's certainly a factor like we were talking about. You, they, They're going to feel sympathetic to the defendant and the victim's family as well. But that's a hurdle you have to overcome. And it's really hard because the juries, I mean, the, the hardest part for me in picking a jury is is getting the person who is the rule follower versus the person thinking 
there, but for the grace of God, go I, you know, because most of our cases, we are dealing with these really high blood alcohol numbers and these combination cases, which are hugely increasing, you know, you know, drugs and alcohol. Okay. So, you know, I mean, ever since, you know, they legalized marijuana, we've started to see this huge bump in combination cases and, you know, and it's not just, you know, drugs or narcotics. It's also prescription medications and alcohol. And, you know, there's a reason why on prescription bottles that they put, you know, the warnings on there, because it we have people that are under the legal limit of alcohol, but they've taken several different medications, all within therapeutic ranges, but they are horrendously impaired, you know, when you look at their field sobriety tests. So, you know, you have to get the people who will follow the rules and who are the rule followers. Yeah. Are there, um, you talked about the Bain case. Are there any other cases that you can talk about uh, uh, that, sure. that stick out to you? Well, there's the Coronado Bridge case. That was oh, one yeah. of the most challenging cases in my career. This is a Navy sailor who he went to lunch with a colleague and he had several drinks at lunch. They actually took an Uber back to her house and then his girlfriend called. So he decided to leave her house. When he left her house, he was traveling so fast going onto the Coronado Bridge that he lost control of his vehicle and he actually slammed into one guardrail, then veered across, slammed into the other before his truck plunged over the side of the bridge into Chicano Park, where there was a motorcycle rally going on. And his truck landed on four people and killed them. He injured another seven. His blood alcohol level, though, at the time of driving, was only between an 06 and a a 0.10. The actual chemical test was a 0.04. So that was a very low blood alcohol case. And we had to do a lot of preparation and research on that in order to show that He was impaired because he suffered significant injuries in the crash, so they couldn't do any field sobriety testing. And so it really came down to the phenomenal job that we did had of our toxicologist or our alcohol expert who was able to say, look, here's all the things that, you know, that do impair you and why it's significant that you not drive well impaired. And that I mean, that case, everything about it was sad. I mean, the lives that he impacted medical bills that, you know, the the individuals had to pay were, I mean, it's $2,000 just for an ambulance to take you from point A to point B, let alone if you're a trauma person, you're treated as trauma, which, you know, is thousands of dollars an hour. So that's a tremendous case. Gosh. And you're right. You know, so many, so many of these cases affect so many people and affect, you know, the entire community, like the Coronado community was, was deeply affected by that case. Speaking of that, you, you must be out there in the community as part of your job through MAD, through other organizations as well, talking about the importance of not driving drunk and the consequences of it that you've seen. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. I do a lot of presentations with the military and I'm happy to go and speak with them about, you know, the dangers of drinking and driving. And, you know, because the military is really invested because they've spent a lot of time training these officers. And the last thing they want to do is lose them because they, you know, pick up a DUI. I also get involved with the every 15 minutes program, which is done in high schools. And usually in the county, there's probably, I want to say seven or eight high schools every year in the county that do this special program, which is phenomenal. They put on a, a mock crash at the high school they the parents are involved in the planning and everything they videotape not only a crash in front of the high school but parents being notified of their child's death morgue um you know video then we come to the courthouse and we film a sentencing and then the following day they do an all-school assembly and they play this video 
super moving, super powerful. And for any of the parents or students that choose to get involved in this and be involved in that program, it's fantastic. And I'm happy to, you know, get involved and do my part and help with raising the awareness of it. Because I think there's a lot of it that I think for a lot of young people, and these are the people that I would say are probably under the age of 25, they don't really know how much alcohol is in drinks anymore because, you know, a standard beer used to be one drink and that was, but that was a, you know, 12 ounces of like Bud Light where the alcohol level is 5%. Well, craft beers, they have a lot more alcohol in them. We're seeing a lot more people that are drinking wine and one drink, one standard drink for wine is four to five ounces. That's like a little over half a cup. When you think about that, it's like when you go to a restaurant, If they pour you like a half a cup, you're thinking, where's the rest of my glass of wine? (laughs) So, I mean, I think there's a lot of it. It's an education issue. And I get involved in just about any, anytime I'm asked to come and speak somewhere, I really try to make it happen. Well, that's really important. And I, and I, I think those, the, the information getting out there, like you're talking about, not just saying, don't do it guys, kids don't do it, but talking about the little known facts that they might not be aware of how much is in certain drinks. What happens, you know, you've, you've now had to look at how many autopsies. I mean, you said 50, at least 50 DUA uh, homicides. I mean, the, the carnage is excruciating and just trying to, trying to convey that to people must be really difficult too. Well, the other part of it is people think because cars are getting safer with more airbags, with more different sensors and things like that. But they're also getting lighter. And the reason the air, they need the airbags is because everything's made out of plastic or fiberglass. Yeah. Right. Your car, even though you feel you're invincible in it, you're really not. And so, you know, even though there's airbags, they're not going to save you from everything. They can't. And so, you know, when you see these people zipping around the freeway, especially in bad weather, you know, I'm just, I don't understand that at all. Well, San Diego is notorious for that. I mean, if <laughs> it was just raining here, you know, this is, I think, day three of probably five days out of the year that it's going to rain. And we don't know how to drive in the rain. And, and everyone's still driving as fast as they were when it's sunny. And then they wonder why CHP goes from an average of, you know, 20 crashes to 300. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think we can uh, have a part two of this podcast of where we rant about the <laughs> the driving here in, in, in San Diego. Um, Kelly, I'm so impressed with your work and the, the things that you do for our community. It's such a it's such a wonderful service that you provide. It really is heartbreaking to have to do this type of work day in and day out. So thank you for um, your commitment to this cause and to the work that you do in the San Diego community. You're welcome. Thank you so much. But you are not done yet. Okay. We, Every episode, we end the show on a light note, and we look at the laws in the books. So two are real, one is fake, and I will ask all three of you to see if you can spot which law is the fake. Are okay. you ready? Okay, yes. Okay, here we go. A, in Wisconsin, the state can forfeit your car after your second DUI conviction. B, in Utah, it's illegal to drive with a BAC of 0.05 or higher making it the state with the lowest threshold for DUIs in the United States. C, the Federal Aviation Agency, FAA, sets a legal limit for piloting a plane at 0.04% or higher. Callie, since you are our guest, I'll ask you to go first. I would say A is incorrect. A is incorrect. Any thoughts beyond that? 
Yes, because I know that Utah switched over to 0.05 about a year and a half ago. And I know that they're trying to convince other states to do the same because there's a lot of alcohol experts that will say that you are impaired for the purposes of driving at a 0.05. And I know the FAA limit is a 0.04, but even 0.04 or lower. So, okay. I'm so uh, glad Callie Lori, got to go first. Maybe you should have gone first. <laughs> uh, she could be misremembering it. You no, know. no, I'm with Callie on this one. I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lose. I feel mm. confident. Oh, maybe, maybe I tricked you. So, okay, let's start with C, since you both agree the FAA set the legal limit for piloting plan 0.04 percent or higher. You both think this is a law in the books, and this one is a law in the books. You were correct. Well, it is a code of federal regulation, but the reason that why I noted this is because recently a JetBlue pilot was arrested moments before the plane was about to take off, flying from New York to Florida. The pilot had a BAC of 0.17%. And the TSA noticed he was drunk. They, they flagged the authorities and they caught the pilot going into the cockpit and escorted him off the plane. So the, the flight was delayed uh, four hours or so, but thankfully they caught him before. I, can, I mean, can you imagine that, a pilot going on the plane? A 0.16, like that's one of those things that we, that seven. number, that, that number doesn't, even though it's surprising to us, judges aren't super offended by it. And you have to kind of remind them for the average person at a 0.17, that's eight and a half drinks in their system in at the time, because your body's always burning off the alcohol. Right. So that's at least, you know, he had to, the amount of drinks that he had beforehand, before he got there, that he's burning off. It's like, that is a lot of alcohol in someone's system. They, they reported that, you know, someone was out drinking with him the night before and then they went off to bed. He stayed there drinking. So he was drinking all night and mm. into the morning. And then I'm going to go fly this plane. Yikes. Well, uh, fortunately, he was caught. And fortunately, if you're a pilot, 0.03 or less, basically, you should be a zero, basically. Yes. No Uber for piloting. If you're piloting my plane, I'd like you to zero, please. Yes, please. I know. I almost picked C because I was like, that's crazy. That's crazy that a pilot could be piloting my plane at 0.04%. Yeah, I think we should change that to zero. Okay, let's go to B. In Utah, it's illegal to drive with a BAC of 0.05% or higher, making it a state with the lowest threshold for DUIs in the United States. Callie and Lori both think this one is real and this one is real. You are correct, Callie. I don't know why I had you go first, but yes, a year and a half ago, Utah was the first state to lower their BAC at the recommendation of NHTSA, uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, uh, from 0.08 to 0.05. And all other states are 0.08. Um, in fact, Utah passed this law in order to combat an average of 29 arrests for DUI per day. They have a tremendous amount of DUIs. Uh, that is section 41-6A-502 of the Utah Code. And after passing it, their deaths and crashes dropped almost 20%, they reported. Wow. A uh, little known fact as well, Utah was the first state to lower it from 0.10 to 0.08 in 1983. And do you know what the last state was? I'm going to guess California. Uh, no, actually, it was Delaware, of all places. Oh, well, that's out right. Until like 2004. So... Come on, Delaware, you got to you got to get with the times. Well, and now, I mean, honestly, if NHTSA and a lot of the toxicologists have their way, they're going to trend downward. I mean, because and what the scary thing is, the combination cases that we're seeing the drugs and alcohol and the effect that it's having on people's ability to drive safely is horrendous. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the science is in, I mean, 0.05, it, it, you're, you're really not safe to drive. So don't, don't even risk it if you're out there. So that all means you were both correct in Wisconsin, the state cannot forfeit your car after your second DUI. That is the fake. However, in 2009, up until 2009, that was the law for your third DUI in Wisconsin. So legislators were trying to bring that back. They, they took away that law and they were using or emphasizing the use of ignition interlock devices, basically a breathalyzer attached to your ignition. That is, according to a 2017 article in the Wisconsin Law Journal, that that used to be the law. They could forfeit your car. So maybe maybe we got. And honestly, honestly, you know, I look at that and think if you're getting a third DUI, you clearly have a drinking problem. So you know, I even though the technology with the inner the ignition interlock devices has drastically improved over the last decade, still it's like. I would not be offended by that law. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, at a, at a certain point, you just are not trusted to to drive on our roads. Well, Callie, you have shined and you sniffed it out right away. and You knew all of these laws. I should have known. I should have picked the, some more difficult ones, but congratulations. You did a great job. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining the podcast, Callie Bright. Anyone out there that's listening, some of you have probably known someone that's been affected by DUIs, or maybe you've had a DUI yourself. Really just think about it before you drive. Still have a designated driver. Call an Uber, call a Lyft, call a friend, do something. Just don't drink and drive. That's our that's our message for you. Lori, thank you for doing this podcast. I hope we do more. We took a little hiatus. Maybe we should take a February off every year because uh, we do. We do actually do a lot of work here, you and I. So it, it is helpful sometimes, but it's always a pleasure to do this podcast with you. And it was so nice to have Callie on. Thanks so much again. Absolutely. Thank you to everyone out there. Thank you for listening. Remember to uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. You can also contact us at crimenewsinsider at gmail.com. And until next time, this is the Crime News Insider Podcast. on this podcast are solely of the speakers and do not reflect the views of the Deputy DA Association nor the District Attorney. Questions and comments can be sent to crimenewsinsider at gmail.com. Please leave a rating and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this show. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at San Diego DDAs. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Well,